Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is Washington Post National Security Correspondent Shane Harris. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, ExpressVPN and Magic Spoon and our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, James, the trial of the century, as it was called, was avoided. Fox News facing what I think was an unwinnable uh, case settled for the lies it spread about Dominion security voting machines in the 2020 presidential election. It cost Fox $787.5 million. That may have been the largest defamation uh, settlement ever. A sizable sum, even for a rich company. You know, I'm delighted with this settlement, I'll tell you, for two reasons. So those who argue, well, we needed a trial to show the dishonesty of Fox News, that wasn't necessary. That was shown through the depositions released by Dominion and the rulings of the judge that Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram in real-time emails and exchanges were caught on the air. They spread the lie about voting fraud in private. They knew that wasn't the truth. When some of their good reporters told the truth, Carlson and company wanted them fired. Yeah, I would have liked more specifics and more juicy inside stuff in a trial and an on-air apology was in order. But if they'd done an on-air apology within days, they would have said, well, we really didn't mean it. Our fingers were crossed. It's indisputable that Fox is not a reputable, honest news organization. There's still another suit against them. But on that, the case is closed. But the other reason I am delighted, which I think gets overlooked, is I think Fox would have lost and this case would have gone to the Supreme Court. And I think this Supreme Court, there are three or four justices eager to overturn the 1960 Sullivan case, which provides, I think, critical First Amendment protections uh, for all the media. I teach a course in the press at Penn, so I've read and reread Justice Brennan's decision um, on that, uh, you know, repeatedly this semester. And what it says simply is that a public official, in this case a public entity, can only win a defamation case if they can prove actual malice, a reckless disregard of, of the facts or of, of what was what is false. This, if I've ever seen it, was a reckless disregard of truth. It's not a case we wanted before this court. And I think also of Clarence Thomas, who has, has displayed his grievance of everything since his confirmation, particularly after ProPublica and the Washington Post revealed his unethical and perhaps illegal activities. He'd have been dying to stick it to the press. So, yeah, um, I don't think that, uh, uh, I, you know, more blood might have been good, but Fox was disgraced, and uh, I, think, I think it's a good, a good settlement. Well, first of all, it's like leaving a baseball game at the end of the fourth inning. Let's not forget, not only do you have Smartmatic, but you have individuals that are being you do. sued, like Lou Dobbs and uh, Maria Bartiromo, maybe somebody else. Don't forget the pillow guy. Yeah, my, my pillow guy. The other thing is that, that and I don't, I'm unclear to whether the special master is going to report back to the Delaware judge about all the shenanigans of Fox News during Discovery. This is important because if that, if, if, if they go forward with this investigation, and it, of course they're going to find shenanigans and lies, that will be relevant to the Smartmatic case and that will f deeply weaken Fox's case against Smartmatic because they were shown to have been lied in Discovery. So I... I, I you know, the Smartmatic case is a New York law, Delaware law. We'll, we'll hear more and more about it. But this, this game is not over, not, not even close to over. And, you know, who's going to be a, 
uh, Lou Dobbs and my pillow guy. These people individually, uh, this Fox and identify them. I, I don't know the, the answers, to, but there's a lot of questions out there left. And there's a lot of baseball left to play. Yeah, here. there is. Uh, James, my impression is that that special master's uh, responsibilities are over. I don't know that. For the umpteenth time on this program, we're going to say we wish Walter Dellinger would hear. He could he could clarify it for us, but uh, that's a wish that's it's, uh, not going to be fulfilled. Uh, I think. That's a discoverable piece of information. I, I've, I've read two conflicts. One source that said... It was done, and also says it continues. The judge can do what he wants. He may say, look, I got through this thing. I'm glad I don't want to go back to being a... Yeah. The judge praised the lawyers at the end, which would indicate to me that, uh, you know, he's finished with this case. But as you say, there's a, there's a lot more there. For all, all of you out there who are worried that Fox felt vindicated about this massive settlement, you should have watched them Tuesday. There was a brief afternoon interruption. Their crack media reporter, Howie Kurtz, gave the results of the case. But he failed to mention the amount of the defamation uh, settlement. And that evening, I watched Tucker Carlson. I watched Laura Ingram. I watched Sean Hannity. I went through a lot. I missed a lot of good NBA games, James. They were three of the central figures in disseminating these lies. Guess what? What do you think they said about this case? They said, James, this will shock you. I know that. They said nothing. Absolutely nothing. Instead, they focused on Eric Swalwell's fundraising. Their tough guy, Josh Hawley, uh, berating the Homeland Security. You know, this, this is a Josh Hawley who egged on the January 6th mob, and then when they attacked, was caught in the camera fleeing like a scared coward. That was a bigger story for Fox than this case. So it's not going to hurt Fox's ratings, but this was not a happy day in Murdoch land. Well, first of all, why would you think they would even bring this up? For, for the main reason they'll bring it up in addition to deeply embarrassing to them, their audience would hate that. They'd lose audience. If they told their audience the truth, all right, they'd lose them. They don't listen to, understand, and I can't get besides this enough, they don't listen to Fox because they want accurate information. They listen to Fox because they want information that they want to hear. And if we didn't learn anything in the aftermath uh, of the November 2020 election is they get punished for telling the truth. So if I'm the program director at Fox, don't mention this shit. We're going to lose people. Well, this was a decision made higher than the program director, I assure you. Whoever but, uh, well, decision. his name is Rupert His know. name is Rupert Murdoch. That's where these decisions but, but, but are made. Fox yeah. knows yeah. that if they dare tell the truth, they lose audience. They don't even need anybody to tell them. I mean, once they start telling the truth, they're done. Be, that, that'll hurt. Would it hurt them more than, than Dominion or Smartmatic or anything? Is that if they had a news director, CEO that said, look, I want y'all to report the facts. Boop, sell that stock right away. Well, the good thing is that we know all this now. I mean, we suspected it before. We more than suspected it. And now we know it. It's there in contemporary emails uh, that Tucker Carlson and company, they're liars. It was that simple. And, you know, James, uh, let me say one thing, James. I'm a relic. I still worship the MSNBC of Tim Russert and a few today like Andrew Mitchell. I, I don't have any journalistic respect for their primetime fare, which I think is just as slanted as Fox in the other direction. But let me tell you the difference, which I think is important. I don't think those MSNBC types, if they knew something was untrue, they would still go and peddle it on the air and lie. That's a huge difference. Fox has done that, and they will continue to do that. And, uh, again, it's not going to affect their ratings. It's not going to affect their money. Uh, they put on uh, interesting television, as dishonest as it is. Uh, but it's a reality that we all now know even more clearly than we did before. It's a clear lesson in American politics. People come to me all the time and say, why don't we just do like they did? Because our people wouldn't stand for it. So they get caught in, in the most fundamental, blatant, foundational lies you can imagine. I personally detest Donald Trump. This is all bullshit, all right? They get caught. They don't care. If, if, if Rachel Maddow of Ari Melba will email anybody and says, you know, I'm sick of this, you know, these liberal shits coming on here in line, and I think Fox was right, they would lose audience. The actual people would care. They, they would. I, I would care. It, it, would, it would affect my, my judgment. They don't live in that universe. And all, all they're doing is servicing their listeners and their voters. 
and they don't want the truth. And you can't apply what our definition of truth or how damning being caught publicly lying through your teeth is. Because, and they don't really, they're delighted if you and I think they're full of shit lies. They're delighted. They don't care. And, and the reason they don't care is because they, not only their audience ambivalent about it, their audience demands lies. And you, again, you saw it in, in November of 2020 when they actually tried to tell the truth and they had to change course. It is not going to change. Well, they got rid. They got rid of or tried to get rid of anybody who wanted to tell the truth, including the person who called, who called Arizona. But I, you know, I go back. Um, they got rid of that. I person. go back to the the danger of this going to the court, and I think not only could the court, not only do I think Fox would have lost, which was one thing, if it if it if they lost because the, uh, of the of the Brennan standards, I think it would have been an opportunity for the right wingers in that court to rewrite the Sullivan case. Uh, and I think that would have been a try. It may happen someday anyway. But uh, this was exactly the kind of case you did not want to go to the Supreme Court. You know, if they want something to go, Leonard Leo will figure out a case to bring. All right? And, and it's not easy, James. It's not easy. They tried with the New York Times case. And this one, this was one that, you know, I remember the lawyers telling me during the Valerie Plame case, good God almighty, we don't want this to go to the Supreme Court. You cannot think of a worse case for the media. Well, that's that's the same as the Fox case today. So on that, we can all be thankful. If they want, if they want to get something up there, it's going to be hard. I mean, it'll they, be hard, and it'll take a while. And every 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 year that goes by, we're we're better off, and we'll all see. All right, all right. Okay. But okay, let's turn now to another um, another. This isn't a scandal. This is this is as laughable as Fox's. Uh, statement about their upholding their journalistic uh, standards. Uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy tried to play the statesman role, going to the New York Stock Exchange to say we're the responsible ones on this debt ceiling. Uh, and this was after his minions had leaked a story to the New York Times that all the problems in the House are due to jo Jody Arrington, the chair of the Budget Committee, and Majority Leader Steve Scalise. Everybody but Kevin. Now, the real problem with McCarthy is he made commitments, especially on spending cuts, that he can't pass. So the answer is blame someone else. Of course, every day he looks over his shoulder and he's worried that some Republican's going to move to vacate the chair and he could be toast. So Kevin McCarthy uh, is, you know what he is? He, he is in many ways the Willie Loman of American politics. And as easy it is to laugh at him and sneer at him as I do, uh, in, in a way he's, he, he's just pathetic. So, first of all, I, I, I think that they would be very reluctant to get rid of McCarthy because they'd have to get someone else. And I always tell the fire coach people, okay, good, let's fire him. Who are you going to get? So you, the caucus said, we can get rid of McCarthy tomorrow. Great. Now who are we going to get to replace him? And you're not going to get a more pliable, malleable, spineless person in there than Kevin McCarthy. The second thing is, Notice where he went to make his statement about the debt ceiling. He went to Wall Street. Now, supposedly, they, the modern Republican Party hates Wall Street. It, it's an instrument of China. It's, it's all these things. And, and he is trying to tell his caucus, of which he does not have behind him. If you, if you just think of this in political terms, it, it's, some, I don't know, somewhat likely, maybe more likely than not, I don't know what the word you'd use, that we have a recession between now and the election of 2024. If they default, guess what? The Democrats have a golden excuse. I mean, utterly golden. It's their fault because they didn't extend the debt limit and it caused this to happen. And that, that's almost political malpractice on their part. I mean, if I, if, if I were in their caucus, I'd say just keep shoving rope out there. But I don't think they can do it. And I think they're running real risk of giving the Democrats a golden answer for what is, you know, a somewhat possible recession that, that may be coming. So they're scared to death. And when he went to Wall Street, he was trying to scare the other people in his caucus. I don't know if it'll work or not. And you're of right, course it won't work. <laughs> he blames Arrington. He blames C. Scalise. They ain't going to put out a budget. 
Because they can't. And what the Democrats need to do is say, if you don't have one by Memorial Day or July 4th, I don't know, pick a day, you know, Bastille Day, Flag Day, Juneteenth, all right? Pick a day and say, if you don't put it out, we're going to put one out for you. That's going to keep all of your promises. And, you, you know, have the Democrats on the budget committee. They got staff, they got people. Start working on, the, on a Republican budget and then put it out there and have them react to it. Well, no, we're not for that. Well, we, we, this is what we did. We had to be, we, we made the numbers work it, that complies with all of your campaign promises. That, that, that's not that hard to do. And every time, 100% of the people in the United States know about Fox Dominion, 100% people know about Alvin Bragg. When Democrats get on television and they get out and open, say, but first of all, let me say that's all, this is highly interesting. I'm sure they're probably going to figure out, where's your budget? 5% of the people in the country don't know they haven't submitted a budget. So they should not be telling people something they already know. Tell people something they don't know that they would find highly interesting and highly relevant. Yeah, let me go back to Kevin McCarthy for a minute. And uh, the reason that he has more to fear than the logic, the undeniable logic that you just uh, laid out, uh, that assumes a certain rationality in that caucus. And, uh, and, and that is a really wild assumption. Uh, there are, I, it is not hard to envision at some stage five members of that caucus, that's all it takes, saying, hey, I'm sorry, Kevin, you didn't deliver on, uh, I don't know, you didn't impeach Biden or you didn't impeach Mayorkas or you didn't uh, let Jim Jordan uh, do uh, one of his thuggish things or whatever, in addition to the budget. So we're going to get someone else. Do they have someone else going to be more popular? Absolutely not. But they're not logical, and all it takes is five members to do that because every Democrat will vote against Kevin McCarthy. So uh, I, do I think it's going to happen? I think it's not likely, but I think he thinks about that, and he hears footsteps every single day. And the only solace I would offer to, to, to little Kevin, or my Kevin, as Trump calls him, is that if it should happen, he would not be the shortest-serving speaker in the House. I looked it up. Theodore Pom Pomeroy in 1869 only served for a day. So, Kevin, you've topped Pomeroy. Well, I, I don't know. Do I think that they're utterly insane? Of course I do. I have no idea what they're going to do. It's fun to watch. It's a bit all the pressure. But, but I, I, I do think there's, they, right now, if I'm them, I have the perfect guy. I can just take him, slap him around anytime I want to. Uh, he's totally compromised. And they don't want anything remotely like a, a, a speaker that has any any kind of authority. But they, you know, they might. I'm not. I think these crazy bastards are going to do. But they, they. The one thing that I do know, generally, you know, there might be an exception. What politics politicians care about is staying in power. And the difference between a four-vote majority and a four-vote minority is like, you know, as Mark Twain said, the difference between the right word and nearly right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that's true, and that, sh that, that should hold the day, but the Ralph Normans and the Paul Gosars and the Lauren Boeberts, they don't worry about those representatives from New York and those representatives from California. Uh, they, you know, they don't think the way you know, normal politicians uh, used to think. So, uh, look, I, I tell you one thing. It, it's not going to be great for the country, but it's going to be the, the chaos is going to be fun to watch. You know, I think it's good for the country anytime you have Republican chaos and malfunction because I, I fundamentally believe that the only hope that America has, only, only, and I repeat only, it is not protect our institutions. Our institutions have fucking blown themselves up. The only, only, only hope for America is elect more Democrats, plain and simple. And anything that advances that, or I think advances that, then becomes your patriotic duty. But forget all the institutional guardrails and all that horse shit. Clarence Thomas <laughs> blown all that up. So you forget about it. All right, it. Kevin, thanks for the, you know, thanks for the gifts. Uh, we'll be back at you. Hey, 
Hey, James, we welcome back Shane Harris, the superb national security reporter for the Washington Post who's been a guest before. Shane wrote some of the most important early stories on the leaks of classified information by a low-ranking 21-year-old Air National Guardsman on Cape Cod. Shane, first of all, thanks for joining us. You know, for all the initial fury about how damaging uh, these leaks might be. Were they really? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm reading, I'm wondering, didn't the Chinese already know about its capabilities vis-a-vis Taiwan? Same with the Russians in Ukraine. And I doubt if it was any surprise to allies that we sometimes spy on them. Is this more serious than I'm suggesting? You know, it's a great question because we keep seeing, you know, and, and the Post has been writing a lot about, you know, documents that we have, that, you know, exclusives that we've had. I think you're right that broadly, I mean, You'd have to be pretty naive, right, to not understand that the United States spies on its allies and, you know, they try to do the same. I think what's interesting about all of these leaks is that they're putting just more detail out there than I think the administration would like to have. I mean, if you look at, for instance, the documents that we've reported on about the war in Ukraine, there's a little bit of a sense that, you know, privately— you know, the United States has kind of decided, like, look, there's this maybe not like a lot of road left here for Ukraine in this war. And while no one is saying and it's time to get to the negotiating table, it paints a pretty grim prognosis for a forecast for the likelihood that Ukraine is going to, you know, take its entire country back from Russia. So I think that it's very re- more revealing in that sense. And certainly, like, you know, if you talk about you know, China understands, you know, the capabilities vis-a-vis Taiwan. The general public hasn't heard that story yet, though. And I think that's kind of the quality of this is it's it's lifting the curtain up even more and probably making policymakers, you know, a bit uncomfortable. So far, though, it doesn't show them to be lying about anything. And that's also very interesting, too. It's just more of the story than they that have been And also different telling. than uh, some earlier leaks. But then the question is, how in the hell did a 21-year-old nobody have access to this material. Right. This is this is the question I think, you know, shocks people is that, you know, somebody who had no need to know this information. I mean, in the intelligence world, you always hear <clears throat> the phrase need to know. And obviously as a 21-year-old support tech for a computer network, you don't need to know about, you know, the order of battle in Ukraine or, you know, Chinese hypersonic drone programs. <clears throat> but The reason he had access is because he was kind of like the guy who was servicing the computer networks where all these documents were kept. He's like the tech, like he's like your HVAC guy, right? So he has to be able to kind of get into the infrastructure in order to help maintain it. And to do that, he had to have what's called a top secret security clearance with special accesses above top secret. And he had that. So it's like, you got to kind of let him in the house to service the house. And while he's in the house, he's looking at all the stuff that's there, making records of it, poking around, which he shouldn't be doing. I think this story where it's going to turn next is what was going on with his supervisors at this base? Like, what was the culture at the place where they worked that uh, uh, appears to have maybe allowed or enabled somebody to be rooting around and poking around in places that he wasn't supposed to be. And I note that uh, this week the Defense Department announced there's going to be an inspector general's review of the conditions at that base. So I think that's going to be very telling to explain how this kid basically got the access, not just the access, but how he was able to then take these documents apparently out of the facility. And, and he had been doing that for months and putting putting them up on Discord, you know, it does make you wonder why, whether it's his supervisors there or the intelligence and defense uh, community, why were they in the dark for so long? Yeah, we've been asking these, these questions too, because the documents themselves, as you said, he'd been posting them in this smaller invite-only group on Discord, which is like a platform for video gamers, for months. About a month or so ago, maybe now about six weeks or so ago, somebody in that group took some of the documents out and put them on another server that was more widely attended. And they were out there for weeks before anybody in the Pentagon noticed. I mean, there were open source researchers, these people who kind of navigate through social media channels who were spotting them. And then the New York Times broke a story about how some of these documents had ended up on Telegram and other channels, some of them frequented by Russians, by the way. And it seems like that's about the time the Pentagon figured out they had a problem. So it's going to raise a whole lot of questions about, you know, why isn't there some kind of effort to be paying attention to these channels to see if there's classified information? Because, like, 
journalists and other people were watching and they figured it out. Yeah. So why wasn't James. the government? I said, hey, he, you say he got a top secret clearance. He's an E3 in Air Force. I was an E4 in the Marine Corps. The only thing I had a clearance to do was grab the non-business end of a mop and move it around. <laughs> get the world's changed. He, everybody has a digital footprint. He, he was out. They could find out that he was an anti-Semite. He was racist. He was an incel. I mean, there's no, the, the, the national security apparatus doesn't like check on people that they have this top secret thing. They say, wait a minute, this motherfucker is crazy. We can't, we can't be looking at this crap. You know, I, I, this has raised all kinds of questions for me about like, what exactly is the background check process, right? Because to your point, James, I mean, this guy was saying all kinds of horrible things online. You know, he had a background in this. He was a gun enthusiast, which is another reason why I think the FBI showed up in tactical gear when they arrested him at his parents' house. Um, we saw videos of, of him firing a weapon while he was yelling the N-word and anti-Semitic comments. It was pretty grim stuff. I don't understand, you know, whether or not the background check process checks on these things. Like, do you have to disclose your social media history? You know, they, they, I presume they ask you questions like, do you harbor resentment against the United States government? And presumably you answer no. But I don't know what the background check process does interrogate on this question. And I wonder now if people are going to say like, hey, maybe we do need to do more of like a social media scrub on people because I have to imagine that when he was getting his clearance only a couple of years ago, if they'd seen the things that he had posted, and what he was doing, I imagine it would have given people pause about giving this person a TSSCI security clearance. Right, and, and, and my point, and I'm going to belabor it, is so three years ago he gets a security clearance. Well, what, sometimes not what you thought three years ago, where you are today, and he, he was letting the world know where he was. So uh, I, I have a confession to make. I've, re I've read too many bad smart spy novels. I mean, if, you sli if you're in an airport bookstore and you slap a swastika on St. Peter's Square, you got my <laughs> ass. I'm it. I don't care what it is. Is there any chance, and I'd like to think this, I don't believe it, but I have to ask it. Is there any chance this is some kind of a false flag operation where the United States intelligence people said, let's put this out, this, this asshole is going to put it up, and we can stick a few things in there that can throw throw people off your trail. It, and because that happens in spy novels all the time. Yeah, yeah. I don't I mean I don't think it is in part because I mean the US government has rules and laws about doing that inside the United States and you know facilitating using a an E3 in the Air Force to do that would probably violate all kinds of laws. I'm also just not sure that the US intelligence community is sophisticated enough to try something like that. Um, right. but I a disappointing answer. But Thank it, you. <laughs> but it, what's interesting though is some of these documents, we think maybe like only one or two, once they got leaked out there did get picked up a apparently by some pro-Russia groups who altered them in some pretty clumsy and obvious ways, but to try and make it look like the Russians were taking fewer casualties in Ukraine. So there was a little bit of manipulation to some of these documents after the fact, which I think kind of goes to, to your point, James. And initially, too, made us in the media kind of be careful about like, all right, are all of these documents tampered with? Are some of them tampered with? So we had to do an extra level of reporting just to verify and there still are, like in each case, you know, whether or not this stuff is accurate or not. And, we, and we've gotten a pretty good process down for that, I think. So before turning to out, people, one of the things, they say, well, the government is lying to us about the Ukraine. Actually, I want the government to lie to me about Ukraine. Okay, I mean, I just do. I mean, I'm Churchill. I mean, when there's an, a, a, something like this, the United States is literally at war. I think the same thing is true with China. No one ever expected Churchill or Franklin Roosevelt. Do you think the Doolittle raid came from Shangri-La? Okay, if you believe that, then you believe the government ought to always tell you the truth. Other than that, lying has always been a part of warfare. And... Uh, you know, I, I maybe I just you know grew up in that post World War II generation where we, we maybe we trusted the government more than we should have. I mean, Pentagon Papers, I was a, a, absolutely. I mean, that I mean this, but lies are like anything else. Some can be good and some can be horrible. Yeah, and I think that this is a case too where I mean, you know, it's not so much even that the government's saying one thing privately and another thing publicly. In this case, it's just I think that they're not being like offering the the full forecast. And you can understand why they wouldn't do that, right? I mean, and look, the government has a very clear interest in keeping this information 
confidential, obviously. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they're going to prosecute this guy and, you know, and I think probably ask for a pretty stiff sentence. Yeah, um, 30 years ago, the great Daniel Patrick Moynihan suggested that we overclassify like mad, that, you know, it's kind of like we, you know, underlining every sentence uh, in, a, in, a, in a book. Um, clearly, that's a problem. Was that, is that any factor here? Can you differentiate? Uh, do we, as the overclassification created more problems like this, or is that a separate issue? Yeah, I think it's a related issue. I mean, insofar as, look, there are some things in this document, these documents you look at and you're like, why is this classified exactly? And eh, maybe it's overclassified. Now, some of it I think you look at and you say, okay, I can absolutely understand why the government wants to keep that a secret. I think more the issue in this case is that after 9-11, the whole culture of secrecy started to change in a big way, which was that the government started to see that they needed to have more sharing of intelligence. Before 9-11, I mean, one of the big causes of the attacks that was identified was that you know, the CIA had its information and kept it to itself, and it kept what it knew about terrorists from the FBI, and the NSA was over here doing its thing and not talking to anyone. And so after 9-11, the idea is like, we gotta get all these people like an orchestra playing together, and to do that, we're going to have a lot more sharing information, which means a lot more low-level people are going to get security clearances to get access to stuff. You know, this is the common theme running through things like, you know, the Chelsea Manning case, the Reality Winner case, the Edward Snowden case. These are all people who maybe before 9-11 would not have had this kind of access. And so I think that's what you're seeing with Jack Teixeira, too, is he's emblematic of somebody who is in this kind of 21st century mode now of share everything internally because the intelligence community wants to collaborate, it means you're going to have more people in the mix and every one of those people is a potential weak link in the chain who could leak. I mean, you might argue that it's amazing well, that more people don't Well, and you also could argue that this is a trade-off that may be access. worthwhile, as bad as some things might be, because yeah. we have the best intelligence in the yeah. world. Part of it is because we're sharing uh, both both internally and externally, and, and by sharing, you just you almost by definition increase the possibility that some of it will get out. That's a we don't like it when that happens, or the intelligence community doesn't like it, but it probably is 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 absolutely uh, unavoidable with the kind of system we have. I think that's right, and I had a conversation just the other day with a senior official about the, the intelligence community about this who basically said what you just said, Al, which is like, look, to some degree, this is a cost of doing business. There are steps that they can take to try and ensure this doesn't happen again, and to be clear, like what Jack Teixeira is accused of doing is illegal, and he wasn't supposed to do it, but... You know, the intelligence community believes it gets a value from this collaboration. They think it makes them better. It makes them more prepared. It gives better information to policymakers. You know, you read through these reports, and a lot of them are pretty sophisticated, really nuanced reports that you think, okay, good. You know, we're spending $50 billion a year yes. on this stuff you would hope that they're telling, you know, the president and members of Congress, you know, stuff that's useful. And I think that, you know, their, their attitude after all of these leaks, every one of them historically, has not been, let's go back to the way things were before 9-11. It's what can we do to put procedures and rules in place to stop this from happening again. A big question will be whether or not those run well, usually tend not to be case. because they always promise it. I think there's been a steady, steady, this shows what an old guy, guy I am, Shane. Uh, I think there's been a steady downward spiral in the quality of leakers. To me, the gold standard was Daniel Ellsberg. He did everything he could. He tried to get that information about the Pentagon Papers out. That was terribly relevant. He also, when he did finally put it out because Kissinger and others wouldn't pay attention, he deleted anything dealing with current operations. And then we went to Chelsea Manning, who was probably just naive and, you know, may have been a victim as much as a perpetrator. Edward Snowden, I'm glad some of that stuff came out, but he ended up in Moscow. Uh, and now we have a 21-year-old right-winger trying to impress his fellow gun nuts. Uh, we always say we're going to push, uh, you know, we're going to plug up these leaks. As you said, we're probably not going to. But, they're, you know, they're going to be more Jack Chaharas uh, out there than they're going to be Daniel Ellsberg's. It feels like that is a trajectory, yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and, and what I found so striking about this leak, and I, this is a new one on me, of, you know, 20 some years covering the intelligence community. When people leak information, it's usually because they think there's some wrong that they want to right. They want to blow the whistle on someone. They may even have an axe to grind. That appears not to be the case here. This guy appears to have shared 
hundreds of classified documents to impress his friends. Or, and yeah, a show off. And because he thought that they needed to know things the average person didn't. Like he kind of thought knowledge was strength and offered protection. So he's like, you know, sharing classified documents with them. And, you know, from our reporting, from talking to people who interacted with him, never intended for them to get out. Once, once a member of the group did post them outside of the broader world, this was kind of seen as a betrayal by some members of the group. And this is a very strange dynamic. I mean, I, I can think of a lot of ways to try and impress people that don't involve, you know, violating the Espionage Act, potentially. So and this guy, I mean, we'll learn more about his motives, perhaps, if he goes to trial. But it's a new one on me that you're leaking information to impress teenagers. But... Here yeah, we are. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, of course, you're not a 21-year-old anti-Semitic racist gun nut. Uh, so it has to do with right. his stability, right. among other things. James Carville. So the first rule I always teach people in political consulting is when you have good poll numbers, run to the candidate. When you have bad poll numbers, run away from the candidate. Because <laughs> they ain't more impressed with good yeah. good. Uh, so, but, but I'll turn back over, but, but man, I just love to have interviewing you and just how great this is. So one of the things is that I am told and read, and I think it's probably accurate, the government doesn't like to try these national security breaches, i.e. Aldrich Ames, Robert Hansen, that, that they'll try to cut a deal where the defense doesn't get to put on, have a lot of discovery, et cetera, et cetera. If you just had to guess, and what we don't hear is we guess and we speculate, and that's just what we do, do you think this will go to trial or they'll figure some other way other than trying this kid to resolve this issue? If I had to just just totally guess, I think right. there's, a, there's a good say. chance that he pleads. I mean, they're going to have digital records. Or they're going to have witness statements. You know, I mean, I suppose he could try to claim that it wasn't really him that put the information in the server. That's That could be tough if there's forensic evidence. Uh, and that they might be willing to cut some kind of a deal with him. And maybe, you know, if he cooperates, you know, for reduced time. I mean, the reason you're right, the, re the reason that they often don't like to go to trial here is because the defense can, you know, can gum it up and introduce all kinds of discovery that might end up revealing more information that the government doesn't want disclosed. So I, I think I, if I were betting, I would say, you know, they try to get him, you know, to take a deal. But I would have to imagine it's going to involve significant prison time. I mean, maybe, you know, 10 years. Got, got, almost got to. Well, Shane, uh, you, you're well-educated at the Demon Deacons, I can tell you well, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I also well. want to say, James, that Shane and I believe that our Demon Deacons are, you know, they're, they're after your LSU Tigers. We're number two, but we're coming on. And, uh, and, and Shane, Shane, you Take are a great guest. <laughs> this has really been informative, uh, and I really, really thank you a lot. Go Deacons. Thanks. Go Deacons. Always good to see you. All right, now for the Outrage of the Week. James, on occasion you have criticized the New York Times, uh, and I have defended it. Uh, usually it's the best newspaper in the world. But a piece this week, a profile of House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan fell well below its standards of journalistic excellence. A profile of a politically powerful right-wing gunslinger is fine if predictable. But unacceptably, it really let slide Jordan's involvement as an Ohio State wrestling coach during the period when a team physician was sexually assaulting athletes. The piece reported that Jordan called the parents of one wrestler who had been critical of him, and then the wrestler backed down, sort of. It was treated as a classic case of he said, they said, rather than of a powerful figure pressuring average folks. No mention was made of the unambiguous testimony uh, that Jordan knew about these sexual assaults from at least a half a dozen other wrestlers, including one who described in graphic detail Jordan calling him, begging him to the point of tears not to tell the truth about this. These assaults often took place in the showers. And, I, I, you know, every year, assistant wrestling coach Jordan awarded a king of the saunas for the best shower banner. So you really think... Jim Jordan didn't know what was going on in those showers. So, yeah, it's a, it's a long, it's a story of a long time ago. The statute of limitations has undoubtedly expired. But the bottom line is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee almost certainly knew about a crime committed and covered it up. 
Even if the statute of limitations has run, this goes to the very integrity and character of a powerful member of the House. Hopefully the Times is playing a follow-up with tougher reporting or some other journalist will. Well, it's a great newspaper, but I'm not surprised by this. If you look at the 2016 presidential election coverage, I wouldn't be surprised by anything. It was like the journalistic equivalent of Fox News, but they do do some good things. I, I, my outrage is, in, I'm probably going to keep coming back to this a lot. So it's not very creative, but it, it just it's such an outrage, it has to be said, and that is no labels. No labels might be the most dangerous thing going in all of American politics. And lo and behold, who did we find out that was a contributor to No Labels? Ready? Drum roll, please. May I have the envelope? Oh, my God, it's Harlan Crow. Gee whiz. He's just looking for a way that we can all come together and supper to table of commonality and have good ideas from both parties, and we can all have drinks and scratch them out on the back of a napkin in this bullshit organization. That is not, it's not just that it's a bad organization. I, I think they're the equivalent of treason. That the only reason they exist is to help Donald Trump get reelected. And the fact that smart people are giving these people money is a goddamn outrage. So I'm outraged this week, and I'll probably be outraged for weeks to come about this, because this is one bone this dog has in their mouth. Thank you, Harlan Crow. Smart people in addition to Harlan Crow. And you know something? If Harlan Crow's there, Jenny Thomas can't be far behind, James. No. <laughs> and, 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 and the people that do that, you know, are, are interested in what they, their, their, their rake is or what the cut is. I suspect it's, it's a little more than the casino cut. But we, nobody can, can let up on this because this is pure evil. It is distilled, concentrated evil. And that's we just will what return it is. to evil every week. Hey, James, now for our listener questions. You know, one of the hardest tasks every week is picking out which six or seven to use because they're all so damn good. Peter in Natick, Massachusetts, James asked, given gun violence, the Dobbs decision, and all the negative controversy about the Supreme Court, would it be good politics to campaign in 2024 to expand the court? I see no other way to counter the super legislative power that this Christian nationalist court has arrogated to itself. Do you? Yeah, you can campaign on that. It's not going to happen. Uh, but certainly criticizing the court, I think, is a very legitimate and a very uh, a relevant uh, campaign issue. They have decided. Remember when they used to say they didn't want judicial activism? We have never seen judicial activism like this. Uh, and I think uh, given some of the latest uh, unethical, if not illegal, activities of Justice Thomas and some of the decisions that I think are coming down, I think it's really legitimate to to, to campaign against the court. You can say it ought to be expanded. It's not going to happen, but if it, uh, you know, if you want to use that as part of your uh, case, you can do it. But I think mainly it's just to criticize uh, that this is an out-of-control court. Well, first of all, I wouldn't tell people something is not going to happen. Maybe it won't happen, but what I would say is we're going to do everything that we can, use everything at our disposal to protect women's health and to protect children. And, and anything that... that any tool we have in our toolbox to do this, I'll use it. And that, that's just simply, you know, if those are my priorities, that's what we should do. I would take nothing off the table because that's where we are as a country. I, you know, and, and I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't say, well, we could do this, but it's not going to happen. If you, if you, on that, well, you certainly want to criticize the court. I mean, because it's not going to happen. You and I know it's not going to happen. You know what it, what it requires to happen. It's not that it's not justified. It certainly is. But, uh, you know, I think just bashing this court, and, and it is a perfectly legitimate thing to bash given the way they've behaved. That ought to be the focus. And, you know, the other stuff is... You know. well, but if, you, if you have 54 Democrats... And you just say, but we vote the majority, and that's what I'm not. Again, whether it, I wouldn't tell people it's not. I said we'll do whatever it you takes want to focus up to and including this. But on on the court and decisions, Gordon and Norwood. I guess this is Norwood, Michigan. It's M I. Norwood sounds more like Michigan than Mississippi, uh, James. No, I think it's Norwood, Michigan. Yeah, but sometimes we get it, you know, the other way. 
Uh, anyway, Gordon says, how do we get stuck? Gordon asked a good question. How do we get stuck with, uh, with uh, Kirsten Cinnamon as our nominee in 2018? She once was the darling of the progressive left, uh, having started her life in the Green Party. But any details you provided, how we ended up getting stuck with her, and he adds, P.S., run, Ruben, run. Yeah, well, um, Ruben's running, so we don't have to worry about that. Uh, you, know, you can certainly support him. Look at this, this uh, legislator in North Carolina. Uh, generally, my, I'm, I'm, maybe I've watched, you know, too much bad detective shows, but money is always the first thing I suspect. That, you know, so I can't tell you that it's true because I don't know that. But anytime something like this You're happens, talking about North Carolina. The first place that I think is North Carolina, Arizona, anywhere. I, that, yeah, that's yeah. my strong suspicion. Do you think she'll end up running as an independent, James? I, I, I think she'll run for president. Maybe she's a perfect match for no labels. I mean, utterly perfect. They, they share the same values. Uh, they share the same ethos, the same, you know, they, they share everything. But what Kristen Simmons going to do, wherever she thinks she can get the most opinions, she, she's not going to run. If she runs an independent Arizona, she's going to run third and run third by a lot. And I'm not totally convinced that that hurts Ruben more than if she doesn't run. Uh, I, Ruben Gallego, Ruben Gallegos, the congressman who was the Democratic candidate, right. Been on the right. show, great, great friend of mine. Uh, whatever she does, her, it, it'll be uh, relative what, what's best for her ego and her pocketbook. And I'm not sure which order they go in, but those are the two considerations that she would have. Matt in Cincinnati, Ohio, asked, why doesn't Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir get more attention in the Democratic Party? Well, if he doesn't, it's through no fault of James Carville, who has talked about him and praised him repeatedly. He is, he is facing... Re-election in a very red state. The Republicans are already pounding each other. A former uh, Trump UN uh, type appointee and the uh, Attorney General. I think Bashir. It's a good chance he's going to win a convincing victory in deep red Kentucky. And I think there is going to be a lot more talk about him after that, uh, James. I don't know as a presidential candidate. You know, if Biden doesn't run, which is unlikely, or vice presidential someday. But in any event, he's a guy who has shown uh, a lot of political skills, and you have been on this for a long time. So, hey, that'd be pretty hard to be imagined that he'd run in 2024. But I, I think that Westmore, Josh Shapiro, and Andy Brashear are just staggering talents. Not, I mean, not just talent. I, I mean, staggeringly, once in a generation. And there are other people like that in a Democratic Party. I, I, I watched Andy with some. At, at, at a fundraiser, and I, I gotta tell you, he, he's as good as anybody that I've ever seen. And, You're not gonna tell me he's uh, as good as know, Bill Clinton. He, I, I'm telling you that no one, he might be, he might be almost as good as Bill Clinton was at a comparable time in his career. He, he's that good. I think West is that good. I think Josh is that good. I, I, I. I I like I like Shapiro because he's maybe a little bit meaner. But I, don't, I don't forget know Big that. Gretch. But be a big oh, I'm, I'm talking Gretch is 2024 material. Like, these guys are probably 2028, right, 2032. Right, right, right. Right? I mean, don't don't um, uh, Mitch. You know, Roy Cooper's. I mean, we there's so much talent in this party that is pent up. I I think I, I'm safe in saying Hakeem could develop into that kind of talent. That's not, I mean, if, if you look at Kamala Harris, you say, well, she's got a ceiling. You look at Hakeem and you don't see a ceiling yet. And that's what you kind of look for. And, and I'd say that that's true of, of, of Westmore, of Josh, and, and of Andy Brashear. We already know Big Kretsch has hit her stride. And the, the thing she has, and I, I saw it, I saw it the same event I saw Andy. She's got presence, man. When, when she's in the room, the you, you, you got, you got a, an atmospheric change in Rome, and I, that, not many politicians get that no, right true. off the bat. Uh, James, the next question is from Dominic in Oregon. Uh, Dominic, next time tell us where in Oregon. It's it's not a small state. My guess from your question is you're in 
from Portland. He said, homelessness is rampant here on top of the sad humanitarian state. It's a political gift to Republicans. Governor Kotick of Oregon has declared an emergency and provided a rent relief program to some Oregonians. You know, can Biden do this at a federal level? So if you see what's also in Los Angeles with Karen Bass, this is a, a huge problem. And in, in, of course, it, it affects Democrats because, you know, most of the homeless people live on coast. A lot of it has to do with the weather. But the, the fundamental things, my, my son-in-law happens to be one of the most knowledgeable people on homelessness. And there's so many misconceptions about what it is and what causes it. Uh, I know he can get us the best person in the world, but I, I think this has become a sufficient issue that we need to do a show on this and get somebody that's really knowledgeable. And, you know, if you see him, whether you kick him off the street or goddamn it, build something or get him out in my front yard, I don't care what you do. I mean, that's because once you have disorder, uh, that happens. And I'm very concerned about across-the-board urban disorder. But when I read about what's happening in Chicago, and, you know, one of the great attributes of living in metropolitan Chicago, my wife grew up on the south side, everybody would come in to the loop on the weekends, but, you know, particularly when the weather was good. And you got these gangs or whatever they are coming in on Saturday night and terrorizing people. You can't have that. You can't have, you go to Portland. Compton, you California. You can't problem in New Orleans. Yeah, California. I, I, I mean, Austin, Texas is bad. They, 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 trust me. So uh, it's a great question, and we don't know enough about this, and what little bit I do know, a lot of this is not what you think. So uh, I think over the you know, next month or two, we, we, we should actually get a person that knows what they're talking about on this issue and what are some real solutions that we can engage in as a country because it's, it's, it, it's, a, it, it, a, it's a humanitarian, awful humanitarian business and it's awful politically. And from what I know, most of these, most people are temporarily homeless. Like most people work. I mean, there's, there's so many myths about this and, and I, it's something we should Well, clear Dominic, up. also, I don't have the data on homelessness uh, levels in different places. But with all the Republican demagoguery on crime, you saw it this week with that, uh, with that fake hearing in New York City, the crime rate, the violent crime rate in Bakersfield, California is higher than Los Angeles, San Francisco, or New York City. And guess who, James, guess who represents and lives in Bakersfield, California? as we affectionately call him, my Kevin, Kevin McCarthy. So crime and homelessness are a problem, uh, but uh, they're not limited to, uh, to democratic uh, cities. Let, let me, let's try this. The murder rate in Florida is higher by more than a little bit than the murder rate in New York or California. But, but God forbid that somebody would say that. Well, you know, in part, it goes to your earlier point because Ron DeSantis keeps hitting his message over and over and over and over and over again, and Democrats get distracted. They'll do it on Tuesday and something else on Wednesday. So, I, I have told people on this show about Miss Susie Wiles on numerous occasions. You can read her profile right. in the New York Times. She has knocked Mr. DeSantis back into the cheap sheet seats. I, 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 I mean, there's just one story after another on that guy. I mean, this woman is cutting his ass up one side when and down When you come to other. Washington to talk to Congress and three members of your own delegation decide to endorse your, uh, your opponent for president, that's not a good day. That's just not what you're looking forward to, and you're right. You know, there's a message there. You know, she worked for DeSantis for a while. You know, when you let someone go like that and you trash them, uh, they're not going to forget it, and, they, and, and, and she's getting her revenge, and it couldn't happen. I don't think she and Mrs. DeSantis are, you know, besties, to say the least. Do you know anybody that, who is a, good, a bestie with Mrs. DeSantis other than maybe Ronnie? I, I think that the two are, are, are not into other people very much. But at any rate, she's, she's reminding them every day of what's going on. And I'm happy to say that I've reminded our listeners of this for some time. For about Here's a question from Shane in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
saying you're not going to like my answer. What do you think the chances are that we could be in the eve of seeing Democrats regain meaningful and lasting political prominence and power at the national level, all three branches? Shane, um, as much as I'd like that, uh, it isn't going to happen. It ain't going to happen in the court for a while. I hope we win the presidency. If they nominate Trump, uh, I think Biden could beat him. Uh, I'm worried about the Senate. Uh, the Senate lineup is not a good one. And I think in order to win the Senate, uh, the economy has to come back and there has to be a good, you know, a, a convincing presidential win or at least a top of the ticket that doesn't hurt a John Tester in uh, uh, Montana or I guess Manchin's going to run in West Virginia. So um, I think the most important thing for 2024, keep the White House. Uh, and number two, hopefully keep the Senate and, um, and, and take a, a small majority in the House. Well, I have a, a, a potentially much more optimistic view than that. And I, I was listening to Simon Rosenberg, who's pretty good. And uh, he, he thinks the right candidate and the right campaign, Democrats could... could Get close to 55. I, I, that's never been done. Who it's are, the, does he, who are the four he says they can beat, incumbent Republicans? Well, if, if, as opposed to looking at the one you can beat, if you, if you get, if you get the national ticket gets, you know, wins substantially, then you can beat a lot of people. As opposed to looking at individual races, you look at the climate. All right. If, if they nominate Trump and we not and we go through a process and we show off our talent and people get a chance to see that, hey, most people think this party is a, a party of geriatrics who are caught in, in the last century. All right. If they see that there's real energy and real vigor out there because they don't like the Republicans, they don't like the Republican position on things. It becoming more and more evident that the issue terrain by, by just really favors of Democrats. And if we were to have a 92 or 2008 kind of candidate that represented some change and the change they do, I, I, I think, I, I think that this country could change and, and could change quickly. Now, if we renominate Biden, do, do I think he'll beat Trump? Yeah, kind of 60-40, but he's not going to beat you by a lot. And you, you're probably going to lose the Senate. Maybe you'll pick the House, and nothing to change. But if you, if you, if you shoot the gun and put everybody, line them up, and let them run, we could have a very good year. It, it, it it's it, it, we stimulated. We got like black turnout up, and man, every election that we have, we're doing since, since 2020. We're doing better than anyone could ever imagine. And the next one to watch. Keep your eye on the mayor of Jacksonville. It's May 16th. It's a ultimate. It's the largest city by far in Florida. It's it's a there not very many Democratic mayors. I think like one in the last I don't know any number of years. But it, it's competitive, and let's see what happens. But I, I'm beginning to suspect that this ground is a lot more favorable Okay, to, to we're going to give you a chance to show it because Bob in Greensboro, North Carolina says, he said, is Biden the best chance for Democrats to win in 2024? If not, uh, uh, give Bob three other great choices that would do better than Biden. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Mitch Landrew, Gina Romalto, Raphael Warnock, uh, Roy Cooper, J.B. Priska, uh, he's gonna he's gonna square three right before it's all over, but right. you and no, I both think. know the odds are overwhelming that Biden's gonna run. It's just there. I mean, I don't want it to happen. I don't think it's overwhelming. You don't. Uh, but I, I, no, it, 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 I think that he is not gonna say anything until they get a deal on the debt ceiling. I think they're mortified of that, and sometimes you know people. He certainly, it's open in his mind. He's not going to say that. I think they have a flawed premise. But hey, I'm, look, would I, would I bet 50-50? No. Would I bet two to one? No. But I don't, I don't, I don't I, I, at five to one, I might get in there. And that's not overwhelming. There are a lot of five to one horses that hit. So I, I'm not, I, I, all indications are that he plans on doing it every six I can't say every signal is sent that he's going to do it because he still hadn't said it. Well, uh, anyway, and, well, I hope your intuition, uh, your guess is I right here. I know. I, anyway. I, my guess, my, yeah, just understand my guess is it's Bob, more Bob, rather than question. three, you know, James gave you six, so that's good. Um, 
Listen, keep those letters coming. They are terrific. If we didn't get to them this week, we'll get to them next week. Uh, and don't forget to tell us not only what state you're from, but what town. Uh, so we appreciate it. Keep them coming. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, ExpressVPN and Magic Spoon, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, you really help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.